I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. G'day! Did you realise that Hippocrates first described the sudden paralysis associated with stroke? and that in 2020 there was an estimated 39,000 stroke events in Australia, more than 100 every day, with incidence of stroke increasing from the age of 30 and the various causes of stroke varying depending upon the age of the patient. Today we're going to learn more about it. In the previous episode we spoke to Ewan, Puggy and Liz about Puggy's stroke and we heard about his intimate journey from the stroke to the long road of recovery. Today we'll dive into the diagnosis, treatment and then the intricacies of cerebrovascular events to provide a comprehensive outline and treatment for these serious events. G'day and welcome to Aussie MedEd, the Australian medical education podcast designed with a pragmatic approach to medical conditions by interviewing specialists in the medical field. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon and I'm based in Adelaide and I'm broadcasting from Garnerland. I'd like to remind you that if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or leave a review or give us a thumbs up as I really appreciate the support and it helps the channel grow. It's my pleasure now to introduce Dr. Michael Waters, an interventional neurologist who works at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Following neurology training, he undertook a further three fellowship years in interventional neuroradiology, both in Australia and in the United States. He works as a stroke neurologist and neurointerventionist, providing minimally invasive endovascular treatment for stroke, cerebral aneurysms and other neurovascular diseases. Welcome, Michael. Michael, thank you very much for coming on Aussie Med Ed. No worries. Good to be here. I'd like you, first of all, you've heard the story of Puggy, a friend of mine, and his stroke. How would you actually define a stroke and how common are they that occur in Australia and around the world? Yeah, so I guess uh, traditionally strokes were called cerebrovascular accidents or CBAs, and that naming changed in recent times because I guess we realised that they weren't really accidents anymore. We usually had a clear cause for them. And so now they're just termed generally a stroke, and that covers both ischemic and hemorrhagic. So basically a stroke is damage to the brain due to a problem with the blood vessels. And the problem with the blood vessels can be a blocked blood vessel, which would be an ischemic stroke, or a burst blood vessel, which is a hemorrhagic stroke, bleeding in the blood vessels. So that's the general classification. They're, they're quite common. So in Australia, about 5%, the prevalence of stroke is about 5% in the over 65 age group. As you get to over 85, the prevalence is about 15%. So that's quite common. And in Australia, about 85% of those strokes are ischemic and about 15% are hemorrhagic. And that changes as you go around the world and even within Australia. So Indigenous and First Nations people in Australia have a much higher incidence of stroke and prevalence of stroke, and especially hemorrhagic stroke. They were overrepresented in that category. And then in certain parts around the world, the incidence and prevalence will be different as well. For example, subarachnoid hemorrhage, a type of hemorrhagic stroke, is much more common in Japanese and Finnish people. Hemorrhagic stroke is more common in certain ethnic groups, including Chinese. And then also different types of ischemic strokes are more prevalent in different populations as well. For example, intracranial atherosclerosis as the cause of a stroke is quite common as a stroke subtype in the Chinese, especially Han Chinese population. So does vary as you go around the globe. Globally, about two-thirds of stroke ischemic and about one-third is hemorrhagic, which is slightly different from the numbers in Australia where the even higher proportion are ischemic. 
Okay. And where does transient ischemic attacks or TIAs fit into this picture? Are they mini strokes that just don't give a significant effect or are they just minor small blips in the actual function of the brain for short-term function? Yeah. A mini stroke is a reasonable way to classify them. That They're really different by definition and by time course only. So a TIA by its definition um, is transient ischemia, which lasts less than 24 hours or without a signature of infarction on the MRI. So we're picking up a lot more strokes these days because MRI is so much more readily available. So symptoms that may have only lasted 15, 20 minutes and would previously be classified as a TIA is now leaving its stamp basically on an MRI. So we can classify that as a stroke because there has been damage to the brain tissue. But really, they can be as serious as each other. Both deserve the workup to find the cause to prevent further stroke or TIA. But yeah, really, this, the same sort of pathological process, but different only by time course. So really, in the past, when I learned a TIA, it was a minor event that was actually a prelude to a stroke, really with better imaging. And as the imaging improves with years to come, we actually realise that all of these are strokes and just as bad as each other. Yeah, certainly we need to take TIAs seriously um, because it can herald a larger stroke. People with firstly new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or atherosclerosis in the neck, um, which might present initially with just transient symptoms, they might be at very high risk of having a large stroke. So these are the patients that you definitely want to pick up. Um, TIA can be tricky because... For example, most patients that come through a TIA clinic um, in the hospital pathway, the majority of those won't actually be a true TIA or ischemia. Um, there's often stroke mimics such as migraine and other causes of vertigo, such as peripheral vertigos and these sort of stuff. So there's lots of stroke mimics, but if it is a true TIA, then yeah, it definitely deserves the, the respect that true ischemia would deserve because uh, it can be a herald to something more serious. Okay. You mentioned the actual difference in, in the actual incidence depending on the population. What other risk factors are there as well? And actually one thought when we're talking about the difference in incidence is collagen deficiencies also increase the risk of hemorrhagic type strokes as well. Is that a factor too? Yes, yeah. So there's a lot of risk factors. In general terms, the risk factors for cardiovascular disease, very similar to the risk factors for cerebrovascular disease. The major cerebrovascular risk factors are the classic ones such as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, smoking, obesity, and then things like alcoholism are also risk factors, renal failure. So they're the sort of the classic ones that encompass the whole cardiovascular, cerebrovascular risk factors. And then there's more specific risk factors for certain types of strokes. So yes, collagen deficiency diseases can be risk factor for hemorrhagic stroke, for subarachnoid hemorrhage but also for vessel dissection, and vessel dissection can lead to, to ischemic stroke. And then you've got your cardioembolic strokes as well, and specifically looking at things like atrial fibrillation, which is the most, the most common cause of a cardioembolic stroke. Okay. When you think of the actual risk factors, in the cardiac history, we use the CHADVAS score to assess whether there's a risk of a cardiac event occurring. Is the CHADVAS score used in cerebral vascular accidents as well, or is it another type of score that's used? We, we don't specifically use CHADS mask, although we use that for patients, obviously, with atrial fibrillation. We have other scores such as ABCD2 score, which looks at things like age, blood pressure, and diabetes and previous stroke symptoms. There are scores that, that we use to classify an overall risk in someone with a TIA. And then a lot of the risk as well will depend on the imaging which we do and the other tests that we do. For someone with a stroke or stroke-like symptoms, the key early investigations are a CT scan and a CT angiogram, which gives us 
the parenchyma, the tissue of the brain, but also the vessels the high, and the veins, the highways in and out. And that enables us to stratify risk quite early in an emergency setting by knowing what the vessels are looking like and knowing what the brain parenchyma looks like. So that's probably the most important early test to work out what's going on. So a CT angiogram as opposed to something like an MRI angiogram, is that because the CT is a quicker events investigation or is it just more easily available? Yeah, it, it's also a better investigation for blood vessels. It's much more readily available. In some countries such as France, then they often triage their stroke patients with MRI because it seems to be readily available in the big cities. But for us, yeah, the CT angiogram gives excellent vessels, luminal vessels of what's going inside the blood vessel, if there's stenosis, if there's any thrombosis associated with that. And so that gives us everything we need. And then usually we'll do an MRI down the trap to confirm. The MRI gives much better views of the actual parenchyma, so the brain tissue, whereas the blood vessels are well captured on a CT scan. You're looking at a stroke or someone who presents with acute stroke symptoms, to compare it to cardiac disease and our field's evolving in an interventional sense about 25 or 30 years behind the interventional cardiologists. And so the, the direct comparison for, a, for an ischemic stroke brain emergency is the heart emergency of the STEMI. So patient comes in with chest pain and you want to see if the patient has a, a coronary vessel blockage or a STEMI. So similarly, a patient comes in with neurological symptoms. So our chest pain is the neurological symptoms. Then the best first test, their best test would be the ECG to confirm the STEMI. Our, our best test to confirm the vessel occlusion for an ischemic stroke is, is the CT angiogram. And then basically then we can find the patients who are candidates for urgent reperfusion because we've also learned from our cardiology colleagues that opening the blood vessel gives the patient the best outcome in the heart and in the brain. And so that sort of urgent workup of the CT and the CT angiogram shows us which patients will benefit acutely from reperfusion and revascularization which gives them the best chance of a good outcome. And that, that's, that's a for ischemic stroke specifically. Yeah. So do you do a CT scan to assess whether it's ischemic before or a hemorrhagic before you do the CT angiogram or do you just go straight to the CT angiogram to assess it? We do, yeah. You can, we go straight to so CT and CT angiogram. So CT gives us a lot of information. So CT, a plain CT scan will pick up hemorrhage and that will be parenchymal yeah. hemorrhage or subarachnoid hemorrhage, so the different subtypes of, um, of hemorrhagic stroke. It'll show us in an ischemic stroke if the brain is already dead, if it's too far gone or if reperfusing the blood vessel would be futile. So it shows us that as well. So the plain brain gives us a, a, lot, a lot of information. And then the CT angiogram shows us exactly what's going on with the vessels. We're looking for an acute blockage which might be able to be reperfused, either through thrombectomy or through thrombolysis. We can probably talk about that in a bit. But also it's helpful for hemorrhagic stroke because um, hemorrhagic strokes can be due to aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, which can be due to obviously a cerebral aneurysm, um, which will be picked up usually on the CTA, arteriovenous malformations and other causes of um, intracranial hemorrhage will as well. We'll get a clue to those on the CTA. Some of those patients might require formal angiography, catheter angiography, but the CTA is a fantastic screening test for us to know what's going on with the vessels. And as well, more recently, we're doing something called CT perfusion imaging, which basically shows us the area of thread and brain and shows us this key concept of what is the penumbra. So the penumbra is the salvageable tissue of the brain, which can be salvaged um, in an ischemic stroke if the blood vessels reopened. And so the CT perfusion imaging will show us that and show us which candidates, what, which patients might benefit from acute reperfusion therapies. Okay. 
Well, take a step back. Obviously, a patient who we suspect is having a stroke, the most common symptoms you will see that they come in with, what would they be? And also, how important is it to get to the hospital as quickly as possible? Yeah, it's very important. In a similar fashion, comparing to cardiology, we've learned a lot from our cardiology colleagues, not just in techniques and treatment and how to reperfuse, but also educating the community about symptoms and how urgent symptoms are. So cardiology have done that very well with heart attacks and chest pain. And now there's mnemonics and other um, catchy phrases to try and identify or try and let the community know what the symptoms are of strokes. One is fast or be fast. So that'll cover a lot of the stroke symptoms. So B for balance, E for eyes or vision, F for facial droop, A for arm, S for speech disturbance, and T just for time. So be fast and the the T showing the importance of time and getting to hospital urgently so that you can be in a window for therapies. That covers most most of the big sort of symptoms of of stroke, both hemorrhagic and ischemic. The problem is that the brain is a very complex organ and a stroke can affect any area of the brain. And so sometimes the signs or the symptoms of a stroke can be much more subtle. If you've got an isolated in, in the hippocampus, you might just present with amnesia. If you've got a very small infarct around the thalamus or sensory cortex, it might just present with with some tingling or numbness on one side. So often the symptoms are more subtle, but the BFAST type mnemonic covers covers a lot of the symptoms that might indicate a larger stroke or one that would benefit from um, urgent uh, reperfusion therapies. Now, obviously, different areas will have different protocols, but in the Royal Adelaide Hospital, once a patient hits casualty and the A&E doctor appreciates that there could be a stroke occurring, what are the steps that they undertake? Do they undertake an ECG routinely to see for atrial fibrillation and we do bloods to look for coagulation profiles, et cetera? What are the main investigations you would want? Yeah, they do. And it's a very coordinated effort when someone comes in with a stroke. So there's coordination between emergency, you know, the EMS, the ambulance and the paramedics communicating with ED initially and communicating with the code stroke team at the hospital. So there'll be some pre-notification. And so the team at the larger hospital can plan for them coming in and plan to get them straight through to the scan. So when they come in, yes, so they might already have a, have a rhythm strip of the ECG from the ambulance. We will get a 12-lead ECG in the emergency as well. But the most important thing is getting into the scanner to get the imaging because, as you just mentioned before, time's very important. And time is brain is the, the phrase that's been uh, used a lot in stroke. And that's because yeah. the acute therapies are time dependent. And the earlier you can deliver those acute therapies, then potentially the best outcome. So when they come into the ED, there'll be a lot happening at once. There'll be brief history, there'll be IV access, there'll be an ECG. We'll make sure that there's a patient airway and that the patient's hemodynamically stable. And if that's the case, then they'll go straight on the ambulance stretcher into the CT scanner. When they're in the CT scanner, staff will be collecting some collateral information, time of onset, any anticoagulants and these sort of things that the patients might be on that might affect the treatment. And then as soon as we've got imaging, then we're making a decision about acute treatment, and that will depend on whether we're finding a ischemic stroke or hemorrhagic stroke. Right. So ischemic heat strokes are the more common ones. It's not the puggy scenario, but we'll talk about ischemic first of all. We've already talked about the defining the actual cause, atrial fibrillation or the actual other events and knowing whether there's a vascular disease. Once you've defined that there is an ischemic stroke, 
and you've actually done your CT and CT angiogram, what are the most common types of techniques you would then perform in those scenarios? Where do you go from there? Yeah, I guess we're trying to identify early the patients who will benefit from acute reperfusion or reopening the blood vessel. And there's two main tools that we have for that. So the first is thrombolysis. We've been doing that for 20 plus years in stroke care. And so thrombolysis lacks specifically on the fibrin to break down a clot. And the time window for that was initially four and a half hours. That's been extended to nine hours or nine hours plus in certain circumstances of favorable imaging. But thrombolysis is only so effective. So depending on the location and the size of the clot and the length of the clot, thrombolysis may only work for around somewhere between 30 and 40% of actual vessel blockages to reperfuse the vessel. So it was recognized reasonably early on that that thrombolysis, although it was a a good treatment, it wouldn't work for, for everyone. And so in 2015, there were a series of five landmark clinical trials, pivotal trials that showed the benefit of endovascular therapy or clot retrieval, retrieving the clot through an endovascular route from the brain and showed the benefit of that in reducing disability. And the Royal Adelaide was involved strongly with one of those trials, Extend-IA, the stroke and the interventional teams there in recruiting patients for one of those trials that were published in 2015. And the five trials showed a remarkable benefit for patients with large vessel occlusion or the blockage uh, of a large vessel. And the number needed to treat was about two and a half, which in medicine is a very impressive number needed to treat, especially when we look at the actual number needed to treat for some of our other interventions and therapies in cardiovascular medicine. So incredible benefit in restoring function and reversing the stroke syndrome. So that's what's happening these days is that patients are going for endovascular therapy for clot retrieval if they've got a large vessel ischemic stroke and they've got some salvageable brain tissue basically. And initially the window was four and a half hours and up to six hours in the initial trials. We've since shown trials that show benefit of endovascular clot retrieval up to 24 hours in select patients who have favourable penumbral imaging on their CT scan. So when you do a clot retrieval, which vessels can you actually retrieve the clot from and what does it actually involve and how big is the clot you bring out? There's three questions that come to mind straight off as you're talking and and I'm in awe of this actual amazing treatment. Yeah, and it is a remarkable treatment, I guess, when I first went into neurology training, this was available only in, cl- in clinical trials. And then you'd see the results of these patients who, without clot retrieval, would be left with a severely disabling stroke or even life-threatening stroke. And some of these patients were leaving hospital a couple of days later. So quite a rem- remarkable and seductive treatment, which is you know part of the reason that I went down a neurointerventional pathway. I really wanted to do what was being done because it seemed such a powerful treatment. And I guess once we've identified the vessel occlusion, they come straight upstairs to our angio suite. And to compare to cardiology again, because people have a reasonable understanding of what happens in a cardiac lab, it's very similar. So they'll come onto the angio table, there'll be an x-ray tube around them. We'll get access either through the wrist or the hip, usually done under local anaesthetic, plus or minus a little bit of sedation, but sometimes they do need to go to sleep for it. And then we'll pass tubes and wires up to the vessels of the neck and the cardiologist would go down and we'll go up basically and navigate to the vessels of the brain in terms of size of what we can do. So initially it was just the proximal large vessels that were involved in these trials. So we're talking internal coronal artery, M1, MCA, M1 occlusions, proximal M1, basilar artery occlusions. But now we're finding that we can go more distal more safely and techniques and technology is advancing so that our catheters and wires can go further out safely in the brain. Nowadays, we're often retrieving 
clots from the more distal segments, M3, MCA segments, in the ACAs as well, using smaller devices. And the clot that comes out is usually pretty small, to be honest. People, med, med students and trainees who come into the lab and you'll pull the clot out and look at it and go, is that it? <laughs> but these are small vessels. That the vessels we're pulling them out of are usually somewhere between three and one millimeter. And so it doesn't take a big clot to cause a significant amount of neurological disability. It's amazing. It's really amazing. With the actual prevention side of things, I'll, just, I'll get onto this for a sec while we're on the actual process. Obviously, we're talking about atrial fibrillation being a risk factor, but if you've got atherosclerosis in the larger vessels, in the past, the, the people used to talk about doing endarterectomies. I presume you can do stents and things for this. I also would wonder, also what about the people with vertebral basilar insufficiency and you've actually got blockage of the basilar vessels too? Can that be treated as well? There's plenty of people I see where they extend their neck and they feel a bit dizzy. Is that a risk factor for strokes? And can that be treated as well? Yes. In the in an acute stroke setting, the answer is quite simple. If you've got the blocked vessel, then the evidence is that if you retrieve and open that blood vessel, then patients will do better. And some of the occlusions that we see, there's the majority of strokes we see are embolic strokes. So the large vessel occlusion strokes are embolic, meaning they've come from somewhere else. So cardioembolic, atheroembolic for the, from the neck. If they're atheroembolic from the neck, then yes, sometimes we to actually get access up there, we'll need to stent and balloon blood vessels to get access. And so we treat the cause as well as removing the clot at the same time. To treat other conditions before they've had stroke, we still don't have great evidence for. So carotid stenting is one area where they're starting to become equipoise with carotid endarterectomy, but we're probably still not quite there. So strictly speaking, carotid endarterectomy for carotid stenosis, symptomatic carotid stenosis is still the gold standard. But as devices and technology improve and stroke risk of the procedure decreases, then we may get to the point where there's, there's complete equipoise or stenting is superior. Vertebra basilar disease is a bit more complicated just because the vessels, the vertebral arteries are smaller and often more tortuous. There was a trial previously looking at vertebral stenosis to balloon and angioplasty, vertebral stenosis for symptomatic posterior circulation disease or insufficiency, but it didn't really show a clear benefit. And so we don't know exactly where the line is yet with treating before someone has a stroke for these conditions. We know that medical therapies are effective, but we don't know if we should be stenting every patient that we see with a stenosis. The answer to that is definitely no, and we're still finding the right patients to select and treat on a secondary prevention point of view rather than treating them with medicines and, and lifestyle measures. Some of those patients they benefit from intervention, but we're still, we still haven't worked out exactly who they are. And as I understand it, so then the embolic events are the main causes, and that's for either from atrial fibrillation or atherosclerotic vessels, and that's why treatment of cholesterol or anticoagulation to reduce the risk of embolic events from atrial fibrillation are the most important preventative measures at this stage. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yes. Preventative measures in general, the things that help with cardiovascular help will help with cerebrovascular as well. So daily exercise, limiting salt intake, balanced diets, some evidence for a Mediterranean-type diet with fish, vegetables, legumes, that sort of stuff. So that's general advice that we'd, we'd give everyone. And then there's other things that we can modify. For stroke, blood pressure is probably the big one. So blood pressure is where you probably get the biggest bang for your buck in terms of prevention, both because it's associated so strongly 
in a linear relationship with both ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke. And so there's definite evidence that if we're treating blood pressure, treating hypertension, then we're going to be reducing the incidence of stroke. So that's where you get often your, your highest benefit. But as we're treating cholesterol to target with statins, with, with other exercise and diet as well is important. And then, as you say, if we identify a certain factors such as atrial fibrillation, then anti, specific antithrombotic therapy for that. With antithrombotics, generally people with atherosclerosis will be on antiplatelets and statins and that sort of medication. People with atrial fibrillation will be on anticoagulation. And most patients now without atrial fibrillation will be on the NOAX or the DOAX, the novel or the direct oral anticoagulants as opposed to warfarin, unless there's coexisting valvular heart disease or mechanical valves in. And so treating those things gives in large benefit in reducing the risk of stroke. For example, someone with atrial fibrillation with a moderate CHADS VAS score being on anticoagulation versus not, their stroke risk can go from somewhere like 12% a year down to about 3 to 4% a year. So there's a significant benefit in identifying things like atrial fibrillation and treating it appropriately. And in those patients with atrial fibrillation on anticoagulation, what's the risk of stopping it for a few days for an operation, which obviously is important for myself? If we stop them for five days, does that increase the risk significantly by stopping and restarting it, or is that a minor risk for those few days? Yeah, in the majority of patients, the risk won't be huge. If you think about the stroke risk over the year of 5% and the few days taken away of the anticoagulation, so the stroke risk shouldn't be huge. The problem is that we often do see patients who come in with anticoagulation held just for a week with, with a stroke and with a large vessel occlusion. And so maybe we're a bit swayed by that because we're actually seeing the ones that do fall through the cracks a little bit. I think that's just... There's, there's hundreds and hundreds who go off their anticoagulation and don't have a stroke in the perioperative period. So I think we're just, we're just capturing the ones that, that unfortunately do. I think for anyone who's at a, on the higher Chad's VAS score, then we might need to consider bridging perioper- perioperatively. But even that's a little bit controversial because there was a, a trial back a number of years ago that said probably the, the bridging benefit for most of these patients, if they don't have a mechanical valve, if they don't have severe OB dysfunction, the risk of bridging probably outweighs the benefit in terms of bleeding. So we don't have a great answer. I think potentially the higher risk patients, we, we might still need to bridge. But generally speaking, yeah, a few days off the oral anticoagulant is not a huge problem for most patients. Yeah. And then the other, before we move on to the hemorrhagic strokes, so just one other question that comes to mind is, what about the person on anticoagulation who actually is quite active in sport and they might be at risk of having injuries or knocks to their head, uh, maybe not Aussie rules football, but they might be doing some mountain bike riding, for instance, and they're on a, an, anticoagulation. We're worried about the risk of an embolic stroke from atrial fibrillation, but what about the risk of a major hemorrhagic stroke from a head, head injury? When does the risk actually outweigh the benefit of the actual anticoagulation? Yeah, I think for someone who's having repetitive head trauma or high risk of trauma to the head, then the risk of subdural hematomas and other intracranial hemorrhage probably is too high. There's a lot of patients who we have who are younger patients who the atrial fibrillation is picked up and these patients still, they still ride bikes. They still play non-contact sports. I'd be reluctant to be playing a high velocity sport with potential head impact on, on anticoagulation, definitely. But I think generally speaking, most other sports and pers- are going to be okay. Yeah. Right. Moving on to the hemorrhagic stroke now. So you said that's about 15% in, in Australia of, of a stroke being hemorrhagic. How does that 
intervention of Barry once you pick up it's a hemorrhagic stroke. And I understand we've seen the video of Puggy and it would be different in the UK, so we're not discussing his case in particular. I'm just talking about in general at the Royal Adelaide Hospital at this stage. So how does it vary? I mean, what happens compared to an ischemic stroke? Yeah. Yeah, so hemorrhagic stroke, I mean, it is quite different. In some ways, with all the advent of the new uh, treatment for ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic stroke's almost been the poor cousin and left behind a little bit. But there are some exciting changes to that which are happening at the moment, which we'll get to in a bit. Hemorrhagic stroke is quite diverse. Hemorrhagic stroke encompasses subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is often aneurysmal or from vascular malformations. It includes vascular malformations and other dural fistulas and things like that, which have bled into the brain. And then there's the more common types of hemorrhagic stroke, which are um, parenchymal hemorrhagic strokes, and they can be either lobar, so in the peripheries of the brain, which is often associated with amyloid angiopathy, a condition that's more common over, over 65, or they can be in a traditional deeper location in the brain, which are traditionally your hypertensive hemorrhages, which we now rephrase as arteriolosclerotic hemorrhages because they seem to have, they're, they're not specifically due to hypertension, but they're due to a vast host of risk factors, which causes damage to the smaller blood vessels, which makes them more prone to, to bleeding. And so they're the general, that's the general classification for hemorrhagic stroke. Whereas ischemic stroke has the, the penumbra, and that's a salvageable penumbra, the, the main issue for hemorrhagic stroke is that the blood itself is quite, or the blood breakdown products are quite toxic. And so the surrounding areas of the brain have secondary damage because of this toxicity of the blood and the, and the breakdown products of the blood. And so if you can prevent that, then you can potentially prevent further disability from stroke, from the hemorrhagic stroke. What we're looking at these days, the the urgency for someone with a hemorrhagic stroke is just the same as someone with ischemic, with with ischemia, because early things such as tight blood pressure control can prevent hematoma expansion. As soon as you get hematoma expansion in a hemorrhagic stroke, then the, the outcomes worsen. So early blood pressure control. Whereas with an ischemic stroke, you actually want the blood pressure to be up a little bit to feed to make that penumbra more salvageable. So tight blood pressure control, reversal of any coagulopathy that might be present is really important as well early on for a hemorrhagic stroke. And a lot of these patients may need more intensive therapy or blood pressure therapy and infusions such as in ICU. So that's the acute medical management, which was initiated straight away. An area where we're potentially going to see more treatment for hemorrhagic stroke is in early minimally invasive hematoma evacuation. So this is something that's under ongoing trials at the moment, and one of those is being run out of the Royal Adelaide. It's called Evacuate, and that sort of sums up the trial quite well, is that the neurosurgeons will make a small craniectomy, and then with a surgiscope, which you can visualise the clot within the brain, then that will be extracted under under direct visualisation. So actually removing the clot so that there's less of that toxicity and secondary neuronal damage as a result of the blood sitting there. And it's shown some early promise in potentially evacuating that clot early will limit the secondary deleterious effects of the blood and the blood breakdown products and prevent further expansion of the neuronal damage. And so that's shown promise already in one other randomised controlled trial looking at hematoma evacuation. And so it might be something that's done more 
routinely for hemorrhagic stroke to actually evacuate the clot and allow them to to start recovering earlier. If the breakdown products of the blood actually are toxic, is there any way of actually trying to minimise that breakdown products by giving, if it's acidic, can you put more alkali into the body to help cross the brain blood blood brain barrier and help reduce the acidic nature of that toxic component, or is there any other ways you can neutralise those effects? Potentially, this is this probably gets on to the what I think is the next big step in in stroke management in general, and that's I think that the holy grail for stroke care, both ischemic and hemorrhagic, is not going to be a new procedure that we do. I think it's going to be a medication. I think it's going to be some sort of neuroprotective agent. So something exactly like you mentioned for ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic stroke, it will be something that when there is potential damage to the neurons that we're administering an agent, which is basically putting the brain on ice, so to speak, and allowing these therapies to happen, either the evacuation of the clot or the evacuation of the hematoma and allowing the brain more time basically and more potential then to regenerate. And then another area as well, which, you know, we're looking at, which hopefully might aid in recovery is looking at agents that aid neuroplasticity. We've talked about the acute stage of a stroke, but long term, and as Puggy's talked about, he just keeps over time, there's continued improvement. And that's because of neuroplasticity and the brain, despite having pathways that are damaged, new pathways will form and the brain will find new ways to, to create neuronal circuitry. And so medication, which looks at enhancing that sort of neuroplasticity as well, um, might be another sort of area where big gains are made in, in patient outcomes. That neuroplasticity just rings home to one of my favourite operations in orthopaedics and upper limb is when we do a tendon transfer from the index finger to the thumb, the patient wakes up and straight away moves the thumb. They don't have to think, I'm going to move the finger, and the thumb moves. It just works straight away, and it goes to show how amazing the brain is. The actual neurology side of things, you've got Stephen Backey, who was on our podcast earlier, uh, coming through the ranks with his uh, involvement in artificial intelligence. And I've asked these questions a lot of my podcasters since we've had Stephen on. The AI working out sort of programs or algorithms to work out which patients actually benefit from which procedures is that already being used at the moment in neurology? It is a little. Yeah, we when we're using our perfusion imaging, we're getting maps that are. It spits out a map for us. It brings in all the data and shows us a map, and it gives a basically a red and a green sort of a stop go type picture, and says this is the area of the brain that's good. This is the area that's bad. And then for certain clinical trials as well, that will then tell you if there's a candidate for that trial, which was how to help with recruitment and stuff previously. But as well, it gives you an immediate sort of idea of what's happening with the map and, and the blood flow. The tricky thing is with AI and the perfusion imaging and the CT imaging is that at the moment, it's probably not yet as good as the human eye because the plain CT brain is often the most important scan. And if you're missing subtle things on the plain brain, such as small bits of blood, and then you're looking to thrombolize someone, that can have quite significant outcomes. From what I've seen, it's not quite good enough yet. And human is still better that may change pretty soon and there's other areas where technology is going to not replace us but hopefully work hand in hand with us one of them is in specifically for neuro interventions one thing that we might be doing in the future is robotic neuro intervention and it might be it might ena- enable us to do procedures remotely this has particular relevance to south australia because our our stroke service covers all of rural South Australia and the Northern Territory. 
And so some patients who may have the stroke in Darwin or Alice Springs, the time to get them here, you know, in the to get them to the Royal Adelaide for a clot retrieval could be four, six, eight hours, depending on um, transport. So by that time, their penumbra may have completely infarcted. So remote robotic um, procedures have already been done in certain settings. They've been done in cardiology, but they're starting to be done in neurointervention. And all you would need is an angio lab in one centre. So Alice Springs and Darwin could be perfect for that. And if you've got an angio lab and you've trained some local staff, then we could be doing our procedures robotically, remotely to extract these clots. So, yeah, that's, I guess, one example of where technology might be helping us and working hand-in-hand with us. Wow. Obviously, you've done a lot of training to be at this stage. Um, Who makes up the team, the Code Stroke team, as yourself? I presume there's a few of you that are on call. What is the actual team that uh, make up for a stroke unit? Yeah, it's it's a great multidisciplinary team. We have stroke nurses who are often the first on hand in emergency at the code strokes and they come, they're specifically trained and they're very good at what they do and they follow the patient from their first port of call in emergency to the time they head off to rehabilitation and they're involved with their care on the ward. They're doing swallow screens, they're looking at imaging with our, they're liaising with, with other medical staff. They're really important. On the ground in the emergency department, we have residents and registrars who are on the code stroke service and they will be the ones helping to get the patient into the scanner as quickly as possible, getting the histories, getting the collaterals and that sort of stuff. We have a stroke neurologist that's on call you know, 24-7, and there's about six or seven of us at the Royal Adelaide at the moment who rotate that call. And then we have, at the moment, we have four neurointerventionalists at the Royal Adelaide who are doing the procedures for stroke, and there's, there's myself and there's two radiologists and one neurosurgeon. So we have a really diverse group and that really helps to have those three backgrounds covered with the interventional procedures as well. And then we're very reliant on anaesthetic colleagues to provide services for these patients when they do need their procedures and often with little to no warning. So our anaesthetic colleagues help us a lot. Intensive care help us post-procedure often to manage blood pressure, manage edema and these sort of things. Neurosurgery may be called on occasionally for hemicraniectomies and other interventions that might be required to to relieve pressure on the brain. Um, And then once the acute treatment is done, the interventional treatment, we're so reliant on our allied health team. So speech pathologists, OTs, physiotherapists, who will then be spending the the days and weeks ahead with these patients and and getting the best outcome for them. Wow. And then obviously progress to a rehab facility as well, something like at the moment would be Hampstead or the repatriation hospital in South Australia, and where they'd probably stay light pugged for some months, rehabilitating, I presume. Is that, and there'd be another team involved in that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Some patients now are, are lucky in that they might leave hospital 24, 48 hours after their procedure. They're the lucky ones who are, have been reperfused and, and have very minimal or no stroke. A lot of the patients, despite reperfusion, uh, or if they've presented later, or with hemorrhagic stroke, where the acute interventions aren't as progressed as what they are for ischemic, then yeah, some of these patients might need in anywhere between days, weeks, and months in, in rehab. And as Peggy said, outpatient services for months and years is actually probably still beneficial because even though you might see the the most rapid changes occurring occurring early on, if you're still pushing yourself and and trying to get extra benefit, then the patients will continue to improve over time. Yeah, it was lovely hearing that from Puggy as well. Yeah, so, Look, it's been brilliant speaking to you. It's been a really interesting. I always love 
every podcast I do, I go, that's, I just go, that's the best one ever, but this has been brilliant hearing all this. So it's really, I really appreciate your time and uh, amazing work you're doing. I'd like to thank you, Michael, for coming on our podcast and putting your time towards this and also all the efforts you're doing in, in that South Australia for all this and, and covering Northern Territory. So thank you very much for all your hard work. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been great. It's great knowing that someone dedicated on the other side when should anything like this happen to myself as well. So look, thank you very much, Michael. Cheers. Thanks, Kevin. All the best. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast today. I'd like to remind you that the information provided is just general advice and may vary depending on the region in which you are practising or being treated. If you have any concerns or questions about what we've discussed, you should seek advice from your general practitioner. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to our podcast and please subscribe to the podcast for the next episode. Until then, please stay safe.